Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Kind of weird, isn't it? Isn't that weird, though, in his horror potion, how Moses, not Moses, Abraham, gets God down to 10, but he doesn't go any lower? That's strange. He was doing so well. I would have, gone, I would, I would have tried to go for one. But think of it this way. So we know that uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives in the city. So there's Lot, Lot's wife. Lot has two sons. He has two married daughters, their husbands, and just two unmarried daughters. Ten people. Abraham is pleading for the life of Lot's family. And then the angels go off and try to find him. So that might answer one of your questions there. So it's nice to be back up here again so soon. As usual, I can't get the remote control working. So this week, the rabbi is in Florida, and apparently you don't hate the sound of my voice as much as I do, so I will be filling in again. So for those of you who are here for the first time or unfamiliar with our congregation, if Simchat Yisrael was like the Avengers, Rabbi Tony would be Nick Fury, and I would be uh, that technician who got caught playing Galaga by Iron Man. So today, I thought I'd like to do something a little different than I normally do. So I'm going to teach directly from this week's Torah portion. Uh, Some days that's easier to do than others. Once we get around Leviticus and Numbers, there are going to be a lot of weeks where we're going to be reading about, you know, guilt offerings and how many ephods of grain are to be placed on an altar. So I thought I'd like to take advantage of it while we're still in the book of Genesis and we're reading the stories of our patriarchs. So as Michael already told you, today's Parsha is Vaera. And it details the middle section of our father Abraham's life. The story of Abraham is divided into three different Torah portions. Lech Lecha, Vaera, and Chayesara. Detailing from the first time Adonai calls upon Abram to Abraham's death and burial next to his wife Sarah in the field that he purchased, the first plot of land in Israel owned by a Jew. And I was struck by how, while Vaera details the middle portion of Abraham's story, it doesn't take place at the midpoint of his life. Abraham is already 99 years old when our story begins. That's amazing. Abraham is just hitting his stride at an age when most of us, let's just be completely honest, are probably going to be dead. So God first calls upon Abraham when he's 75 years old. I'm amazed by this. There are times in my life when I feel the clock ticking on me. I see myself getting older, like literally. I didn't cut my hair. It just turned gray and brittle and fell out the other night. And, you know, I feel the day slipping through my fingers, and I fear that it's too late for me to become the man that God's called me to be. But then I read something like this, and I see just how great God's mercy is. You're never too old for God to use you for his purpose. It might take 75 years, but if God has a plan for you, he will see that you get that call. There's so much to learn from the life of Abraham. Vaera, detailing the events that took place between his visitation by the three angels up to the binding of Isaac, represents, in my opinion, the most momentous times in Abraham's life. This is the middle portion of the epic trilogy that makes up the life of Abraham. This is his Empire Strikes Back, his two towers, his... Rocky Four. We, we've gotten that set up out of the way. I think this is where the action begins. So I'd like for us to take a few minutes today to really look at our Torah portion and see what we can learn from the life of Abraham. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in, chap- we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, we're going to do a bit of jumping around today in the portion. 
Normally I'd start at the beginning, but before I do, I want to take a quick detour and look at a really strange conversation that happens between God and Abraham. David already did a wonderful job reading it. I'm not going to do it again. But for some reason, God decides to tell Abraham about his intended destruction of the city of Sodom. So Abraham jumps in and asks, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Would you really destroy it even then? God says, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50. And then it basically becomes a bargaining session. Abraham asks, how about 40? God says, I won't destroy it for 40. And that goes on until Abraham reaches 10. And that's basically the conversation. So one really big question comes to my mind when I read this story. Why does God ask Abraham's opinion on the matter? He's God. Couldn't he just decide himself? It seems like God doesn't even listen to Abraham in the end. God just destroys the city anyway. Why does God ask for Abraham's opinion? Now, I have some ideas, but before we can really answer that question, I think we really need to take a look at this Torah portion and see what kind of man Abraham is. So hold on to this question, and we'll come back to it at the end. So this week's Parsha is full of some of my my favorite Abraham stories. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get to every story, so we're just going to focus on chapter 18 today. So let's start at the beginning. It's one of the most famous scenes in the Bible. Abraham is sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day when three strangers pass by. He urges them to take rest and take some food. The text calls them men. They are, in fact, angels coming to tell Sarah that she will have a child. Now, this is an interesting scene to me. Abraham is lauded throughout Jewish history for his hospitality. He's generally considered the paragon of generosity and kindness, chesed, towards strangers. One of the enduring symbols of Abraham's life is the chuppah, a tent open on all four sides. Tradition teaches us that Abraham would set up his tent at crossroads so that any traveler passing by in any direction would be able to stop and enjoy the comforts of his home. Now, Abraham's hospitality is famous, and yet everything written about it in the actual Torah comes from just these few sentences. Wow, that could have come out better. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. What Abraham did for these three men was awfully nice. But really, is giving them a few pieces of bread and sending them on their way such an incredible thing? I mean, granted, he was recovering from his very recent circumcision. I can't imagine I'd be in a very welcoming mood after that, but uh, still. Was this so great that Abraham should forever be known as the icon of hospitality? What are we missing here? What did Abraham do here? That was so remarkable. Now, linguistics is not my strong suit. Normally, I would never try to teach on it, but I just found this so interesting. What makes this story, which you cannot read up here, it's why you all need your Bibles. (laughs) What makes this story so unique is revealed in how the word Adonai is translated in the text. Now, Adonai can have two possible meanings. It could mean God, Or it could mean my lords or sirs, a title of respect and deference. Which way we translate it changes the very nature of this encounter with the three strangers. So hold on, this is where it gets complicated. Now, every translation agrees that the first, Adonai, means Lord God. I hope you can read that. Now, Adonai appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the tent. God was coming to visit Abraham. We all agree on this. What many translators disagree on is the meaning of the second Adonai. I have highlighted there. 
When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And he saw them, and he ran from the tent toward him, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, Adonai, if if I now have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be fought to brush, wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree. Now, a great many Bible, Bibles translate this Adonai to mean sirs. So, I don't want to read it again. Sirs, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. If this is the case, then Abraham is simply greeting guests while he's hanging out, doing not much else that day. Again, very nice gesture. Nothing astounding, though. However, that is not the way Judaism has ruled that, this pas- that we translate this passage. In any Jewish translation, that second Adonai is translated as Lord God. So, Lord, so now it goes, Lord God, if I have not found favor in your sight, please not pass your servant by. This doesn't seem like a big deal at first, but think about the implications of this. This translation suggests that Abraham interrupted God as he was about to speak, and asked him to wait while he attended to his guests. This is how tradition ruled that the passage should be read. The Lord appeared to Abraham. He looked up and saw three men standing over him. On seeing them, he hurried from his tent door to meet them and bowed down. Turning to God, he said, My God, if I found favor in your sight, do not leave your servant. Please wait until I've given hospitality to these men. Then he turns to the men. Let me send for some water so you can bathe your feet. Abraham basically did the equivalent of picking up his cell phone while God was talking to him, saying, hold on, I, I got to take this. You know? This interpretation has become the basis for a principle in Judaism. Greater is hospitality than receiving the divine presence. Faced with a choice between listening to God and offering hospitality to what at least seemed to be human beings, Abraham chose hospitality. And God was okay with it. He acceded to Abraham's request and waited while Abraham took care of the guests before continuing his conversation with him. Is this even a good thing, though? Isn't it at least a little disrespectful, if not downright heretical, to put the needs of human beings before the presence of God? What this passage is telling us, though, is something incredibly profound. Think about the world that Abraham lived in. Tradition teaches us that Abraham's own father was an idol maker. The people of his time worshipped the sun, the stars, the forces of nature as God. But Abraham knew that God is not in nature, but beyond nature. He knew that there was only one thing in the universe on which he has set his image. Us. Abraham knew that to live the life of faith is to see the face of God in every human being. It's easy to receive the divine presence when God appears as God. What is difficult is to sense the divine presence when it comes disguised as three strangers. That was Abraham's greatness in chesed, in kindness and hospitality. He knew that serving God and offering hospitality to strangers were not two things, but one. Abraham teaches us that we honor God by honoring each other. This is chesed, kindness. So Abraham's hospitality comes right back into play in the next scene. After the three angels depart, God and Abraham have their famous conversation about justice that David read for us. And this speech is remarkable in itself. And we'll take a closer look at it in a few minutes. But before we do, 
I want to introduce a big fancy college boy word, juxtaposition. This is one of my favorite words. I don't know why. I think I just like words that start with the letter J, like my name. <laughs> juxtaposition is two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. The rabbis teach that the Torah is a perfect document and that every letter is perfectly in place and has a purpose to it. It's no accident that the story of Abraham's hospitality immediately precedes the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the rabbis ask, what is the reasoning behind this juxtaposition? What is the Torah trying to contrast? To answer that, the first thing we need to understand is that, the pe- that people have been reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah wrong for a long time. Christianity places all the emphasis on homosexuality being the sin that got Sodom condemned. Judaism has never seen it that way. Uh, a particularly clever scholar once said, reading the story of Sodom as being about homosexuality is like reading the story of an axe murderer being about an axe. Now, Judaism teaches that Sodom's great sin was inhospitality, the very opposite of Abraham's great virtue. Judaism teaches that Sodom was destroyed because they had a completely twisted their sense of morality. The most important value in Sodomite culture was what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And they took this creed to the very extremes of logic. The Sodomites viewed any act of charity or compassion as the greatest of crimes. To give something of yours to somebody else was considered a poison to their society that would give rise to people not wanting to fend for themselves and instead living off of others. And the the Sodomites would violently react to any act of charity or hospitality they saw. It's kind of funny how that, not much has changed, has it? So the Talmud tells some pretty hair-raising stories about the city of Sodom. I'll leave out the worst ones, but, you know, one of their practices was if they saw a man begging, they would give that man a bag of marked gold, you know, gold pieces with with a mark on them. The beggar would then try to buy food, but any sodomite who saw the marked gold would refuse to sell him a thing until the man died of starvation, a bag of gold in his pocket, but unable to buy a single piece of bread. After he died, after he was dead, the man who gave him the gold would come and take it right off the body. And another one of their traditions was if a stranger came to town looking for a bed to sleep in for the night, they would take him to a bed. If he was too short to fit in the bed, they would stretch him on a rack until he fit. And if he were too tall, they would cut off his feet. So you can see why Lot was very insistent that his guests not try to sleep in the town square. So the people of Sodom did not attack Lot and the angels because they were homosexuals. They did it because they couldn't stand the idea of people giving and receiving hospitality. So we come back to this juxtaposition of two stories. The first of Abraham's incredible hospitality, and the second of the Sodomites' utter lack of it. And this contrast shows us something very astonishing about the character of Abraham. Think of it this way. Everybody has flaws. Everybody has things about them that are imperfect or annoying or obnoxious. I interact with a lot of people every day. And generally, most people's flaws don't bother me all that much. I can handle most people's imperfections. There is one thing I can't stand, though. Noisy people. You all know the type. There are two people who are standing 18 inches apart, and they're just yelling at the top of their lungs while they talk. You know, there's this one guy I work with. I call him Christina Aguilera because he never stops singing. 
And, and not well, mind you. I mean, like just snippets of whatever crummy rap song is going through his head at the moment. He's just one of those people who aren't comfortable with silence, and he needs to be making noise at every moment of the day, and this aggravates me beyond the limits of human comprehension. Because <laughs> I'm a very quiet person. I enjoy peace and quiet and silence, and it's irritating for me to be around people who don't. So we have a tendency to judge people's weaknesses against our own strengths. If you're a punctual person, you're annoyed by the person who's always late. If you're neat and orderly, you despise your messy roommate. There's a certain satisfaction we get when we see that late person miss the bus as they keep hitting their alarm clock instead of getting up. We take this perverse pleasure in seeing the messy person unable to find his car keys because he can't remember which pile of junk he threw them into. So if I am strong in one area, that gives me license to judge people who live, fail to live up to my standards. But that's not how Abraham sees it. The Sodomites had nothing but hatred and disgust for a value that Abraham held in the highest esteem. You would think that when God tells them about the impending doom of the city, Abraham would say, good, getting what they deserve. But instead, upon hearing the news, rather than feeling self-righteous, or justified, Abraham is moved to compassion towards these people who embody everything that he is against. In this moment, Abraham is defying human nature. He resists and overcomes a desire to judge others and instead seeks to find the good in everybody. Abraham teaches us that true righteousness, justice, is not just being good, but seeing the good in others. So, finally, we come back to that famous conversation between God and Abraham about the fate of Sodom. Just to reiterate, God is about to pass judgment. Abraham, fearing that this will mean the city will be destroyed, says, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all earth do justice? Think about the situation here. I mean, David read it so well. It was, you could tell if everyone was like kind of cracking up as, they, as Abraham dared further and further. When I pray for something that I don't think I'm going to get, I can do so with the confidence that the worst thing that's going to happen is God's going to say no. That's not Abraham's situation. God is standing right next to him. If he doesn't like what Abraham is saying, there might be thunderbolts involved. (laughs) And Abraham doesn't just ask once and leave it at that. He pesters God half a dozen times about it. He's got, this guy's got chutzpah to do this. This conversation marks the first time that a human being challenges God himself. What right does Abraham have to challenge the will of God? Now, the answer, of course, goes right back to the question I asked in the beginning. Abraham can challenge God's will because God asked Abraham's opinion. So I'll ask again, why is God involving Abraham in all this? Why is it any of his business? A while back, some of you may remember, I did a children's sermon I'm actually pretty proud of. It was about the difference between power and influence. I love that Tom actually spoke about influence today. It's incredible synchronicity within this congregation sometimes. But I spoke about the difference between power and influence. I compared power to a bag of coins that has to be divided when shared 
slowly losing its value as it spread thinner and thinner. But I compared influence to a flame that never diminishes when shared, spreading from candle to candle until the whole world is illuminated by the light of one man's influence. This is what God has called Abraham to do, to be that light to the world. Abraham's job is to positively influence others. In their first ever encounter, God says to Abraham, through you all the people of the world will be blessed. Abraham was supposed to be a model of good values. Take a look at the verses right before the conversation when God decides to tell Abraham about the plan to destroy Sodom. We get a very rare glimpse into God's own mindset. Take a look at this, though. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was from chapter 12, right when God first speaks to Abraham. But now we get a glimpse into God's own mindset. And God said to him, said to himself, it seems, can I hide what I'm doing from Abraham? Abraham is going to be a big, strong nation. And through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And look, there's that phrase again. That the words that encapsulate Abraham's mission to bring blessing to the world. And the rabbis teach us that it's because of that mission that God chooses to tell Abraham about Sodom. But God continues, For I know Abraham to the extent that he will command his children to keep the path of God. And what is that path? To do righteousness and justice. Look what's going on here. For the first time, we are finally getting a sense of what Abraham's mission is. Yes, he's supposed to be the model of goodness, but in what way? Teaching righteousness and justice. Chesed and justice. The story of Abraham is filled with the tales of how he selflessly focused on God's legacy instead of his own. But this adds a layer of depth to Abraham's mission. Selflessness isn't just about focusing on God. It's about focusing on other people, too. It's about doing, and teaching, about doing and teaching righteousness and justice and human relationships as well. And because of that mission, God chooses to engage Abraham in the conversation. It seems that God wants to teach Abraham something about his mission, about the power of influence. Abraham is confronted with the possible destruction of Sodom, and he's forced to consider what might save them. And he quickly realizes that the fate of the city rests on the shoulders of the righteous, whose job it is to teach the qualities of justice and kindness. So Abraham dares to ask, God, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Doesn't that show that there's potential for larger change? And God says, yes, exactly. This story shows us a beautiful, teachable moment. God's willingness to save a whole city because of the potential of influencers shows Abraham the power of his own potential to be a positive force of goodness to those around him. The book of Genesis up to this point tells us a story of how, after a succession of failures on the part of mankind, God creates a plan C. God shows Abraham to bring blessing on the rest of the world. Viera gives us an even deeper insight into that mission. Throughout this portion, we see Abraham being a role model of how to treat other people with righteousness and justice. And now we see God teaching Abraham about his responsibility to teach others to be kind and just too. Justice, kindness towards others, the focus on the relationship with God, these are the essential values that will appear as we continue to read through the Torah. 
And these are the values that our father Abraham teaches us to us, even today. We are called to be ambassadors of these values through the promise that God made to Abraham and the great nation that God has established through him. Let us pray that we are up to the task and we can share the light of Abraham's influence with the world. Thank you, everyone.